Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Neela Atmos. Ableism is a persistent and often underestimated ism. 61 million people in the U.S. have a disability. Every family has someone with a disability. And yet, disability rights are poorly understood and all too often overlooked. Back in the spring, I had the privilege of hearing today's guest speak, and her rallying cry from that speech is still ringing in my ears. Nothing about us without us. Rebecca Coakley is the first U.S. Disability Rights Program Officer for the Ford Foundation. From 2009 to 2013, she served as an appointee in President Barack Obama's White House. She also served as the Executive Director of the National Council on Disability. Rebecca has advised a record number of presidential campaigns on disability rights, and prior to joining Ford, she was the founding director of the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Rebecca, welcome to Future Hindsight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk about the work specifically that you do in just a moment. But first, when you're speaking publicly and reminding folks nothing about us without us, what are you pushing for and what are you pushing back against? Well, I think it's important that we actually examine what nothing about us without us means and and really where it comes from. And it's not a U.S.-based phrase, even though it's been popularized by and almost turned into a cliche by so many social movements. Nothing About Us Without Us comes from South Africa and comes from disabled protesters pushing back against apartheid and really then obviously has become a rallying cry for marginalized and oppressed people globally. But I think so often in the U.S., we often think that we're the folks that come up with everything. And so I always really make a point of of hitting home that that phrase has a much deeper meaning and and really highlights the importance of cross-movement organizing and that movements really reflect those that are closest to the pain. When, When we talk about this in the disability community, you correctly noted that there are currently roughly 61 million disabled people. It's important to note that that's the number before COVID. And if we're looking at rough estimates about the increase in the disability population, we're much closer to 81 or 90 million people with disabilities in this country. I think we're going to continue seeing the ramifications and different ways that long COVID manifests for the next probably five years to possibly even the next decade. And so it really reminds folks that you can't ignore people with disabilities. There is no correct remediation for any social ill, whether it's hunger, whether it's poverty, whether it's it's sexual harassment in the workplace, that will ever be successful as long as people with disabilities are not at the table and centered as part of those that are affected. Well, as you've just pointed out, when you talk about disability rights, it's a huge tent. So what is your focus in your work? For us, in the work that I do at the Ford Foundation, You know, we had a long conversation with the disability community when I first came on board almost two years ago now, two years ago in January. And we really thought it was critical that the disability community inform the grant making that we were going to do. And so we brought in over 100 experts with disabilities, including people with chronic illnesses and mental health disabilities, including those 
who worked in the disability movement and got fed up and left, including people with disabilities who work in broader social justice spaces, family members of people with disabilities, and others to really help inform the work. And when we think about the disability community, we use the broad definition that's included in the ADA. So it's anybody with a mental or physical impairment a history or record of such impairment or the presumption of an impairment. So you can, you know, as you indicated when you were talking about ableism, a lot of people don't realize that you can be subjected to ableism even if you aren't a person with a disability. If society assumes that because of how you look, how you talk, how you behave, how you produce or reproduce, that you're disabled, you can still be subjected to ableism. And so we really wanted to hear from the community about what they really wanted us to tackle and it very quickly became evident that it was the need to go after the nexus between disability and poverty. It really is sort of an Ouroboros. If you're poor, you're more likely to be disabled. If you're disabled, you're more likely to be poor. And part of that, frankly, is because the U.S., like so many other countries, almost has a second set of laws that, in effect, codify the state of poverty for disabled people and their families in this country. Yeah, I think that's one of the most shocking things the codification of poverty almost for disabled people and sort of how punitive actually the system is for, first of all, for people who are poor, but also for people who are disabled. So it's, I think, like doubly punitive. So I wanted to go back about the big tent idea. It's huge, right? And it's growing, as you noted. We're three years into COVID and more and more people are now disabled and are going to experience disability. And yet we are now fully in the you-do-you phase of the pandemic, a kind of rugged individualism which makes it harder for the vulnerable, the marginalized, to be protected from this disease and to participate in the public sphere. I wanted to explore with you how you've experienced this evolving situation because there was a moment there when it felt like people's awareness was shifting, right? Like we were all feeling somewhat medically vulnerable, and inclined toward communal response and mutual care. But it seems that moment has passed. What do you think? I think the abled are abling. Honestly, very much as you said, about maybe a year and a half ago, I had hope. You know, when we watched the non-disabled community Columbus telework, where they were like, oh, we've discovered this thing. It's called telework. We can work from home. We can provide workplace flexibilities for our staff. And yeah, people with disabilities have been asking us for this for 30 years, and we've been telling them that it's not, it's not possible, but yet we as a society move to it all completely overnight, and it's shiny, and it's exciting. We're used to that from non-disabled people. You do it with captions. You do it with curb cuts. You do it with wheeled luggage. You do it with MP3s. There's any number of tools and resources that have been developed for and by people with disabilities that have been co-opted or discovered by non-disabled people. And I think the reality is, is we actually had hope for you. And I say that when I say for you, I mean for non-disabled people. We had hope that you were gaining a, a level of enlightenment. We were hopeful that you were starting to center those that were the most marginalized or those that were closest to the pain. We were hopeful that you were starting to be more innovative in a highly creative way and thinking about what does education need to look like? What does work need to look like? What does self-care look like? And at the end of the day, as non-disabled people typically do, it reverted back to a conversation led by capitalism. And the idea that, you know, this was what we had to do for a certain period of time, 
but you know what? We're over it. And we're just going to lead our lives the way that we want to. Um, and it's funny talking about the the rugged individualism and, you know, sort of that that Teddy Roosevelt mentality, given that both Teddy and Franklin were presidents with disabilities. And actually much of the systems that disabled people are struggling with today were actually put together during the New Deal era and, you know, a, a period of time that was marked by great gains in social capital and shifts in the social safety net that still very much in many ways over almost 100 years later still leaves people with disabilities behind. Right. Well, I was just going to ask you about the accommodations and telework and remote school, because for years, as you have also just mentioned, of course, working on options for remote work and study and inclusive and flexible models were just, you know, not possible, right? But suddenly it's like, oh, we can do all this. You know, I have read many articles in the beginning of the pandemic where disabled people said, I literally dropped out of college for this and now it's available to everyone. So it turns out, of course, it was possible all along. They just didn't want to make it possible and or accessible. So COVID also highlights so much of the systemic discrimination and inequality, which was always there, but was previously more easily ignored. Can you talk about the ways in which disability and poverty intersect? I know you mentioned it at the top, but let's really dive in here. Absolutely. I would recommend there's a great example that was just recently in the newspaper back at the beginning of November. There was an article in the New York Times wedding section talking about these two executives, one who worked for Adidas and one who worked for Reebok, getting married, who had met through mutual friends. They both had a love of the outdoors. And they had ridiculous chemistry, but they didn't live in the same city at the same time. So they just agreed that if and when they could meet up and date, they would. So they had this wonderful international romance. And then all of a sudden, he apparently ghosts her. She finds out several weeks later that he's been in a snowboarding accident and is now a quadriplegic, which means he is paralyzed from the neck down. And it was all about their wedding. And, you know, she wore a, a gorgeous designer dress and like he had this gorgeous tuxedo and all of this stuff. And there was one little sentence in the article that my dear friend and colleague Alice Wong highlighted where it said that their wedding was not an official wedding. Rather, it was a commitment ceremony because they cannot get married for if they do. And at some point in time, if the groom's medical needs end up becoming more significant and he requires Medicaid, that they would be ineligible because their income would be too high. And this is all too common for people with disabilities. While the Obergfell ruling, you know, created marriage equality for LGBT folks, and it, it's so incredibly important and so groundbreaking, people with disabilities who receive federal benefits are still, in, in many cases, are ineligible to get married because they end up having too much income and it invalidates their eligibility for federal benefits that for some people with disabilities, frankly, keeps them alive and keeps them at home in their communities. You know, that's just one example. I remember having a young man intern for me several years ago. And while he was interning for me, he was applying to law schools. And he got into Harvard with a full ride to Harvard Law. And he ended up having to turn it down because he required at least 12 hours of personal care attendance services, someone to help him in and out of his wheelchair, someone to turn him at night to prevent him from getting bed sores, um, someone to cut his food for him and help him get dressed and, and bathing. And in the state of Massachusetts, uh, they would only give him three hours of home care services. 
And so he had to, you know, he went to a state school, got his law degree, is doing really well as a partner in a firm. Is he doing as well as he would have done with a Harvard law degree and zero law school debt? Probably not. But the fact that we live in a society that forces disabled people to make those choices, to choose between future success and your goals in life versus your access to health care, it's criminal. We should be ashamed that the country that we live in forces those choices. You know, over the last several years, we saw a number of states restrict access to nutrition programs, to SNAP benefits. Most people don't realize that one third of households that are enrolled in the SNAP program include people with disabilities. And so those cuts to those programs fundamentally force disabled people to have to choose between trying to find a full-time job, which let's be real, people with disabilities face a roughly 70% unemployment rate in this country, in large part because of ableism and discrimination, or being able to eat. You know, and it it's very telling that there are certain parts of this society that believe that other parts of, of people in this society are undeserving, are undeserving of supports, are undeserving of what they need to thrive, and frankly should be punished for wanting access to the same American dream that people with disabilities think of as a given. Right. These are all great examples that really illustrate how like I said at the beginning, how punitive it is, almost doubly punitive it is for the disabled. But can you walk us kind of more concretely through like what it means to make too much income and to lose access to Medicaid? Because I think that would help the listener a lot. Certainly. For people with disabilities who are on supplemental security income, they have what's called an asset limit. And that asset limit means that you cannot at any point in time have more than $2,000 in a bank account, or you get a notice from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services telling you that your health insurance has been cut off. And so that funding can come from any number of places. If it's a gift from somebody, if a loved one gives you a check for $2,001, your health insurance gets cut off. Let's say when there was the child tax credit that was being sent to people in a, in a hard form check or direct deposited, people that were working on that policy actually had to go in and ensure that those checks would not count against means-tested programs. Or you would have gotten funding to help you in your parenting, but you would have lost health insurance for your entire family. Because if you had multiple children, that check could be more than $2,000. It also means in many cases that people with disabilities can't do programs like AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps, that you're restricted from programs like that where you would make too much money and lose your health insurance. We don't do this for, well, actually, let's be clear. We do this for certain classes of our communities, certain parts of you know, the American citizenry are subjected to these horrific means-tested programs. And in many cases, like with Social Security, the last time these numbers, A, they're not indexed to inflation, which right now would be extremely helpful given how significantly the disability community is being impacted by inflation at this moment. But those limits have not been raised since like the 70s. Since you could buy a loaf of bread for 50 cents, you know, since a tank, a gallon of gas was $1.09. And so they don't keep up with the times. And yet we're still expecting disabled people to live off of expected asset limits that were grounded 
back during the Nixon administration. Yeah, that's really perverse. I didn't realize that the indexing is so outdated, I mean, for a lack of better expression. So I want to talk about ableism, as you termed it, abled's abling. And this Last election cycle in the U.S. Senate race in Pennsylvania after John Fetterman used assistive technology, i.e. closed captioning, to support him in interviews and a debate as he continues to have auditory processing issues following his stroke, there was wide-scale questioning of whether he was fit to do the job. Were you surprised by any of that? And what was your reaction? I wish I was surprised, but again, able dabledig. Honestly, I expected it as soon as I heard that he had a stroke. And I think anytime we see a candidate for office who self-identifies as a person with a disability, regardless of what that disability is, I I, want to be very clear about that. We start to see ableist questions about their ability to perform the essential functions of the job. And that language, essential functions of the job, comes out of the ADA. And it's grounded in the idea that if you should require the use of an accommodation to perform the essential functions of the job, that you're entitled to it by law, and you should not face discrimination because of it. We've seen this come up time and time again with any number of candidates or, or people in the public eye. I remember very clearly during the confirmation hearings for Justice Sonia Sotomayor on the Supreme Court, uh, watching several senators question What would happen if she unconsciously went into diabetic shock while sitting on the dais? And wouldn't that make her fundamentally unqualified to serve on the Supreme Court? Now, if you want to look at a group of people that have had serious episodes of cancer, of strokes, of heart attacks, look at any cast of characters represented on the Supreme Court. I mean, those are lifetime appointments, but yet they were very willing to call out a woman of color's diabetes and question it in terms of her fitness to to serve. And I think we see this on both sides of the aisle. And and I want to be very clear, like this is, I often feel like people with disabilities are treated as the football in the Peanuts cartoon with Charlie Brown and Lucy, where Lucy pulls the football away as Charlie Brown goes and kicks it. And I'm really, frankly, tired of the disability community being the football for the left and the right. And it's not acceptable. Just as in the previous administration, we saw questions raised about the fitness of the resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to do his job based on how he drank water or how he walked. I am equally uncomfortable with that. And I also think there's a real nuance that's being lost here where they tie any sort of physical manifestation of a disability in automatically to a cognitive disability and then say that people with cognitive disabilities can't serve. Because I do think that people with intellectual and cognitive disabilities can serve and should have the right to serve. I mean, one of the first major deaths of the coronavirus uh, in New Orleans was a gubernatorial appointee who worked for the governor who was a woman with Down syndrome. And so it's ableist to say somebody can't serve because they're disabled. But it's doubly ableist if we say they can't serve because they're disabled and they likely are cognitively impaired, which should equally mean that they can't serve. And so I think many of us in the disability community have really tried to bring nuance to this conversation. You know, and I think at any given point in time, like right now, we have a president who speaks with a speech impediment. We've seen that lobbied about repeatedly. You know, I think one of the 
most proud moments I've had of this administration was watching one of the earlier presidential debates and people talking about how the president would pause before speaking. And all of us in the disability community knew damn well what he was doing. He was trying to structure in his brain what his answer was going to be based on the words that worked best for him, the words that he could deliver most comfortably. As a person with a disability, that's no different than me waking up in the morning and thinking about what route to work am I going to take that has the least number of elevator outages? Or, you know, what are the accommodations that I need to get set up if I'm going on work travel? Do I have a footrest for my feet? Do I have my cane to knock down the towels in the hotel room? Um, if I'm speaking on a stage, please tell me that they have a stool behind the podium or I'm going to make it really awkward and speak from behind the podium with no stool and people aren't going to see me. You know, these are the things that disabled people and their families have to think about on a daily basis. And to see that abused and, and treated as if it's a disqualifier versus someone accessing something that they're entitled to by a 32-year-old civil rights law is frankly exhausting. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, the election laws that make it harder or even impossible for people with disabilities to vote. More with Rebecca Coakley in just a couple of minutes. But first. All over the world, democracy is on the knife's edge. If the West had stood up for democracy, Russia would not have been able to put tanks there today. The same tanks and the same troops that are threatening the homes of people I love. And at home, we're fighting for the soul of America. We walked up in here amongst hostile people. There's KKK here, there's skinheads here, there's all kinds of that stuff here. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. Don't miss Democracy in Danger, a podcast that's saving government by the people one week at a time. Find us at dindanger.org and wherever you get your audio. And now, let's return to my conversation with Rebecca Coakley. I want to turn from campaigning and electeds to voting and the ways in which election laws can and do exclude people with disabilities, like exact match signature regulations or laws affecting voting by mail. Can you tell us about the areas that concern you and why? This is also one of those places where the phrase nothing about us without us, I think, is so important. And I think many of the people that are coming up with voting laws and thinking about the security of the vote, which is, let's be real, a very important topic, don't think about people with disabilities until the ink is dry. And then they say, holy buckets, we haven't thought about what this means for people with disabilities. Or in some cases, they intentionally craft laws that frankly make it harder for people with disabilities to vote. I think we saw this even with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, where that particular legislation required a visually verified paper ballot. Not all people with disabilities have the ability to mark their ballot. If you're blind, you may need alternative mechanisms of marking your ballot so you know what's actually written on there and to be able to visually verify it. Um, may require assistance. You know, for me growing up, I'm a little person, as was both of my parents, but my dad used a wheelchair. And going back as far as 1988, you know, over 60 to 80% of polling places in this country are inaccessible in some way, shape, or form. And so I would go with my dad to the polls 
he would send me in and see the folks at the registration table and tell them that my dad was in his wheelchair equipped van and could they please bring a ballot out to him. And they would bring the ballot out to him and he would literally like mark it on his steering wheel and then pass it back to them. And he would have me at six years old like walk back into the polling place to watch them because he was like, make sure they do it. I want to make sure they cast my ballot right and go in and watch them cast his ballot. And they would give me the little sticker and give him a little sticker. And the fact that still today, the GAO continues to say that that number hasn't changed, that 60 to 80 percent of polling places are still inaccessible. And I think there's a multitude of reasons for it. You know, one of the most popular places to, to vote continues to be churches and churches are excluded under the ADA. So what does it mean when you don't get to vote the same way as everyone else? You know, I think we saw states that had really phenomenal voting policies during the pandemic where we saw the expansion of no excuse vote by mail, where we saw places where you could drop off your ballot, where we saw 24 hour voting, early voting, same day voting and registration. All of those things are really important. And at the same time, also make it so much easier for folks with disabilities to vote. And, you know, one of the things that I saw that was particularly exciting is, you know, the need to expand early voting. A lot of people were saying we should just make Election Day a federal holiday. While I think that that sounds really good, people aren't really looking at, like, who's impacted by that in a negative way. If you make Election Day a federal holiday, Oftentimes, public transportation goes on an alternate schedule, so it actually makes it harder for seniors, low-income folks, and disabled folks to be able to vote. If people with disabilities have assistance required, if they need a personal care attendant or maybe a sign language interpreter, oftentimes those contracts give them federal holidays off, so they'll actually not have the supports they need to be able to vote. And so I think this is why it's so important to have people with disabilities at the table as these policies are being crafted to ensure that there is somebody there to be like, yes, but what does it mean for this community? And how do we make sure that the policies that we're making are inclusive of as many people as possible and informed by the experiences of as many people as possible? Right. Yeah, I think uh, bolstering early voting is such a strong move. And to your point about having a federal holiday and then suddenly having different bus schedules, that has never even occurred to me. But yes, that's real. And plus then if it's a federal holiday, you get paid overtime or something like this that you wouldn't otherwise, like it all just adds up. It all, I mean, I remember when I was at the Center for American Progress and we were talking about various proposals and they were talking about how during the pandemic in the 2020 election in Atlanta, the big early voting place was at the basketball stadium. But because it was the pandemic happening, they had canceled the majority of public transportation to that stadium. So it's like, yeah, early voting is happening. They have plenty of machines. It's awesome. But you just can't get there. And so who is being left behind when we actually, you know, create policies that are not informed by seniors, by immigrant labor, by people with disabilities, by first responders even during a global pandemic? Right. So how do we get more people who are directly affected into these conversations and into these decision-making conversations so that their needs, their perspectives are addressed? I think we're starting to see some change. I was really heartened by the 2020 election and seeing, you know, 15 candidates develop disability policy platforms. That had never really happened before. 
And I think it happened for a couple of reasons. I think first, the fact that the field was so big, everyone on the Democratic side of the aisle was looking for a part of the vote that hadn't been touched yet. And I think that really played to the disability community's strength. I also think um, the disability community's presence online Nobody out-organizes the disability community in terms of online organizing, and particularly paying credit to Alice Wong, uh, Andrew Pullrang, and Greg Baratran, who founded Crip the Vote, which is the disability hashtag for anything disability in politics. And what was interesting was during the 2020 race, when I would hear from campaigns, I would ask campaigns because I wanted to see how much, like the level of infiltration that the disability community had had. And I would ask the campaigns, well, how do you know what we care about? And they're like, every campaign I talked to was like, oh, we follow Crypt the Vote. We watch the Crypt the Vote chats. And it led to three different candidates asking to host Twitter chats with the disability community because they knew that the disability community was not going to town halls because there was a pandemic. You know, and so they were actually shifting how their campaigns worked to ensure the community was at the table. You know, I think continuing to watch candidates for office or actually current elected officials start to self-identify. There's a phenomenal program that was run by a woman named Sarah Blahovic and Neil Carter called Elevate, which was to support people with disabilities who want to run for office. Very similar to, you know, Emily's List programs and Emerge and programs that focus on marginalized communities who want to support people from their communities becoming elected officials. You know, I also think programs like Rev Up, which is run by one of our grantees, the American Association of People with Disabilities, which is located in a number of states that focuses on helping people with disabilities access their right to vote, to get to the polls, to advocate for equitable voting policies. And, you know, continuing to say, what does it look like? Like, what should we be doing as local officials in charge of the elections, because that's the other thing. It's remembering that elections are governed by the state. And so this isn't a federal thing. And so what can you be doing, you know, as John Q. Public or Jane Q. Public, who's a person with a disability wanting to have an impact, engage your election commission, find out who your election commissioners are, volunteer to be a poll worker on voting day. And, you know, thankfully and sadly, you will not make enough money to trigger those asset limits. So if you are on SSI, that's one job you don't have to worry about them coming after you about. But participate, be at the table and start to shape some of these policies to ensure that people like us, people with disabilities, actually have a fair shake when they go to vote and that we won't continue to see these really abysmal numbers around voting inaccessibility or we won't continue to see People make up stories about how a disabled vote is a fraudulent vote, as we also see often in the media. It is important that we counter these really harmful narratives with one grounded in equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of grounding these experiences in equity and inclusion, do you think ableism is called out enough? I started by saying that it's often overlooked, but do you think awareness is increasing or that the non-disabled community is getting better at checking itself. And I'm thinking here specifically about Beyonce and Lizzo, both re-recording songs to remove ableist lyrics. Do you see that as an example of consciousness, or is it a story about a lack of awareness that these two megastars got as far as pressing records and releasing albums before anyone noticed? I think Beyonce and Lizzo are very much aware of their fan base. And I give so much 
phenomenal credit to Black disabled women who were very vocal and very strategic in how they called them in in that moment. You know, I would never deign myself an expert to comment on Black disabled women's Twitter. That is not my place. But I want to really highlight that it was the leadership of Black disabled women reaching out to both Lizzo's team and Beyonce's team that drove that change. And I think it's important. I think that there is always an opportunity to learn. I don't think that anyone is immune to their own prejudices or not knowing what is the right word. I think there's so much nuance around language in the disability community in general that a lot of times people just get hung up on, are you disabled? Do you want me to call you a person with a disability? What language do you like to hear? And I think many times non-disabled people feel that they're the expert. And so the number of times that I've had someone tell me, oh, you're not disabled, Rebecca, or I don't think of you, I hardly think of you as disabled. You're just little. And I'm like, I don't need you to tell me what I am and what I'm not. And frankly, that's really messed up. And I need you to like back away from the little person. But I do think that there is growing understanding around ableism. And, you know, I think it's really important to note that there were a number of reporters, even during the most recent debate in Pennsylvania, that called out ableism, whether it was Rebecca Traster, Serlina Maxwell, or others who were very quick to say, let's actually unpack the ableism in this conversation, where I would say prior to 2020, that wasn't on journalists' radar. You know? And so I think it's, it's important to credit that there is a growing awareness, and, and it also takes time. And at the same time, what it makes me question is, you know, for people that are not Beyonce or Lizzo, for people who are in roles where they directly interact with members of the public, are you qualified to do your job if you don't know how to talk about disability or disabled people? We're 25% of the population. We're coming out of a mass disabling event. If you don't know how to interview a person with a disability and you're a journalist, I question your qualifications to do your job. If you're running for office and you openly mock disabled people, I think that means you're unfit to do your job. I don't think it's a question of, of are you a good person or a bad person? You're unfit. We're a quarter of the population. This is not acceptable. And you need to go back to school and take some courses and, you know, maybe do some online learning and just like any other skill set. And, you know, it also to me indicates the importance of highlighting disabled voices in journalism and the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here, here. Well, with our growing awareness, there's still this way, of course, that inclusive language is framed as being silly or excessive, right? Like we hear this all the time, and that's not confined to disability rights, of course. But in this case, I'm thinking of the reaction when Vice President Kamala Harris added a visual description to her introduction to be inclusive to blind and visually impaired audiences. And by the way, of course, the event in question was held on the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act and focused on the effect of new abortion restrictions on the people with disabilities. Like I said, the reaction from some sectors was disheartening, but are you at all optimistic that this kind of inclusive language, at least, or being, you know, truly inclusive, <laughs> the broader question, do you have hope that this will become totally unremarkable one day? I do have hope. And honestly, the actions of the vice president, to me, were an indicator of it. She was also the first candidate in 2020 to issue a disability platform, largely focused on economic justice and empowerment for people with disabilities. 
And the fact that she did that, I think, is really important. And the fact that she didn't back down after she did that. You know, people think things like that are silly, but they often provide very important information to people who have visual impairments or have other neurological disabilities that might mean they don't read body language well. Or, you know, you might not know that you're a person in a room with X types of people, you know. And so that information, to me, is very valuable. To me, it's no different than captioning. To me, it's no different than ASL interpreters. You know, somebody could easily say, why does it matter that an ASL interpreter will tell a deaf person that someone is speaking all of a sudden very loudly or in anger? Those are context clues that we as people really need to make informed decisions about how we respond to a situation. You know, if you are in a room with a bunch of protesters and they're all wearing shirts that say different messages, and let's say, you know, let's give the conversation about about Dobbs, you know, wouldn't it be useful to know who's wearing a pro-choice shirt in the room versus who's wearing a pro-life shirt? Or what kind of imagery is being used? Aren't those context clues that, you know, for a person who has visual acuity or doesn't have a vision disability, they're able to tell that. But doesn't that put people who don't have that at a fundamental disadvantage for not knowing? I mean, we see it even in in some of the more creative captioning on media. I, you know, I, I like to joke that I frankly think that the uh, Disney Plus channel has some of the best audio descriptions out there because they'll tell you you know, that Obi-Wan is sitting with, you know, really messy hair and a furrowed brow, which is different than him just coming in and being like jovial and like hanging out with Princess Leia or whatever it is. But I think people always treat disability accommodations like we're getting something special, not that we're getting equal access to the same tools, resources and information as non-disabled people. We see this with parking, We see this with access to rides at amusement parks. We see this with being able to bypass long lines at airports. There's always a non-disabled person who's willing to be like, look at those people, they're getting something special. Not, oh, it must be painful for that person to have to stand in line for two and a half hours at TSA. And that has impacts on their health. So we actually should have accommodations to ensure that they have what they need. You know, or someone who pays the same price for you to go to a concert and is stuck staring at butts the entire time. That's why there's ADA seating, because I don't want to pay $120 to look at someone wearing too tight jeans when I want to go see Lizzo. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have to fundamentally shift to an equity mindset that this isn't just about making disabled people equal, because it's not. We've never been equal. We don't live in a society that allows for equality for disabled people. So we actually have to go back and address the historic inequities from the beginning. Right. Yes. Well, I want to make some space for some bragging here because it's important to celebrate the wins too. What are some wins you want to celebrate in your work? We have just roughly wrapped up our second year of disability grant making at the Ford Foundation. And to date, we've moved over $20 million, which is an unprecedented historic number, to organizations predominantly led by disabled people and working to further the cause of disability rights and justice in the U.S. Um, It includes the first Native American-led disability justice organization called Crushing Colonialism. It includes the first 
polling project that actively polls on disability issues and polls people with disabilities because traditionally we are left out of polls and pollsters typically avoid disabled people. And that's a project over at Data for Progress. We have actually seen legislation introduced, advocated for by a number of our grantees that focus on raising those asset limits that we talked about. And it's got bipartisan support out of the state of Ohio. And that's really exciting and would actually index those uh, asset limits to inflation as well as increase them exponentially to allow people with disabilities on SSI for the first time to actually be able to save money, which shouldn't be groundbreaking, but yet it is. The exciting thing about the work that we're doing is just that, as I phrased a moment ago, is that it's grounded in equity. We're not just looking at what is it that we need to do to make the disability community even with everyone else? Because we'll never get there, because abled, abled. But also because we've never had the chance to get there. You know, for example, the disability community doesn't have trade associations. So if you're a young disabled engineer and you're trying to find other engineers with similar disabilities to yours so you can find mentors and role models, good luck with that. You're just going to have to sit and Google. But in the last two years, last year, we launched the National Association of Disabled Journalists. That's helmed by Kara Reedy at Storyline Partners. And this year, we supported the creation of Docs with Disabilities, which is an organization of healthcare professionals with disabilities and chronic illnesses that is run by a woman named Dr. Lisa Meeks. And we really see that as, as promising because we also know that there are people in the healthcare profession that have acquired disabilities because of long COVID. And they are less likely to know about their rights and more likely to basically be discriminated against in their workplaces. And we need them to stay in their jobs. It's important that we have doctors with disabilities and chronic illnesses and nurses with disabilities and chronic illnesses. It makes a more informed medical profession and it makes us stronger in pushing back on COVID. And so continuing to think about where are the gaps and where can we really innovate And where can we build something that there's never been anything before, which frankly, considering this is the first time that philanthropy has really wholesale gone in to funding disability, means that everything we do is innovative. Yeah. Well, I think it's shocking that this is such pioneering work when everything that you're describing sounds obvious as opposed to something that's really earth-shatteringly innovative, but like totally necessary. And it's so surprising that it has not existed before. Is there some legislation at the state or federal level that you would really like folks to be aware of and support? I would tell people what we really need to monitor is actually court decisions as it relates to the ADA. The ADA is constantly under attack. It has been under attack ever since it was passed. And I don't think in the disability community we've paid as much attention to the courts as we need to. In the last three years, we've seen cases come up that would overturn key parts of the ADA or the Rehab Act or the Affordable Care Act and have huge detrimental impacts on our community. And they always start at the state level. So, And so who, I would tell... Who brings the suits? Various folks. Actually, there was a bill passed in 2018 that would repeal Title III of the ADA. And I give a lot of not positive credit to Anderson Cooper, who has done a series of stories frankly, framing disabled people as having nothing better to do with their lives but sue businesses over inaccessibility. It's a complicated issue because the reality is, is these businesses are inaccessible. 
The ADA is 32 years old. There are state and federal grants that are available to help businesses retrofit. So there are attorneys that take on a, a number of cases and will repeatedly sue businesses for their lack of accessibility. And what ends up happening is Congress hears about it. And then Congress, typically the House, the House will introduce a bill. These bills are, the, the umbrella term for these bills is ADA Notification Acts. And what they do is they remove any enforcement mechanism under Title III, and they give businesses an unlimited time to make themselves accessible. And so, you know, businesses can take years under this legislation. And typically what ends up happening is these bills are framed as supporting minority-owned small businesses, but they are fundamentally funded and backed by the hotel and restaurant lobby who don't want to make themselves accessible. And so media puts out these stories, as, as Anderson Cooper and CNN have done a number of times, about these fraudulent ADA cases, which A, aren't fraudulent. B, they are annoying. I get why they're annoying. But so is inaccessibility, and we've had to live with it for 32 years. And so we see these bills come up every year, inevitably. One actually passed the House in, in 2018. It was called H.R. 620, the ADA Education and Reform Act had bipartisan support. And luckily, there were a multitude of senators, including Senator Duckworth and others, who ensured that it would not come over to the Senate side. But we see this all the time. I mean, it really does go down to that point I made about how people see disability rights as extra, as you know, people with disabilities getting special treatment. I just want to be able to go into Starbucks and reach my coffee and leave as quickly as anybody else. And the fact that people feel that doing so gives me special treatment or gives people with disabilities special treatment is is really frustrating, you know, and I, I would hope that we get past that point. But I think it goes to that rugged individualism, that notion of what is it that I have that they don't have or what is it that they have that I don't have and that that's unfair. We need to really unpack how harmful that mentality has been to our country and particularly to marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's been very harmful. So what are two things an everyday person can do to be an ally to disability rights? The first I would say is, you know, if you're an average everyday person and you feel safe self-identifying as a person with a disability, but you haven't yet self-identified. As a person with a, a visible disability, as a person living with dwarfism, I often don't feel like I need to talk about the conditions that you don't see because I sort of feel like, oh, my dwarfism gives me a pass. No one's going to ask me why I need a step stool. No one's going to ask me why I'm asking for the accessible restroom because I'm a little person. It's obvious. And it was many years ago that I had a friend challenge me and say, why don't you ever talk about your anxiety disorder? And I said, well, because I don't feel like I necessarily need to talk about it. And I realized like it was part of my disability identity that I wasn't comfortable with. So my friend dared me and he was like, I dare you at this event we're going to, which had a whole bunch of young people with disabilities. He's like, talk about it. Uh, he's like, just see what happens. This is a safe space. And I did. And it ended up being something that meant a lot to the young people in the room. And at the time I was a White House staffer. And so many of the young people in the room that had that lived with mental illness never thought that they could have a job like that. And so seeing somebody like me in the job that I had in, in the Obama administration was life-changing for them. 
And so we often don't think about those things. We think about them, oh, it's just a personal thing. I don't need to talk about it. I don't need to make it an issue. But by talking about those things, you actually open up the space so that others feel included. And I think that that's a really powerful thing. The other thing that I would say is pay attention to when disability is left out and bring it up. I remember the first time I was ever in a meeting and it was, I remember it was at the U.S. Conference on Women hosted by Valerie Jarrett and Cecilia Munoz at the White House and was in a room for like a pre-con and we were talking about forms of discrimination that women faced and these two black women across the table from me brought up ableism before I did and it blew my mind. It made me feel so welcome in the space also because I knew I was one of the last people that speaks and so nobody really pays attention by the time you get to like the 20th person in the room and the fact that they were in the first five and they were like no we should actually talk about ableism and, you know, sanism as it impacts people with mental illness. Those are critical things because they disproportionately impact women. And I remember like breathing this sigh of relief and being like, I have never been in a space where I haven't had to be the person that brought up issues facing my community and how really powerful that was. The last thing I would say is just read, like pick up, pick up Alice Wong's disability visibility book or her The Year of the Tiger that just came out. Pick up Sammy Shock's Black Disability Politics. Pick up The Pretty One by Kia Brown. There's plenty of amazing books out there written by phenomenal people that will help educate you. I think so many times as disabled people, the non-disabled people in our lives expect us to, to do that education for them. And that's laborious. That's emotional labor. And sometimes it's not easy. And having to sit there and you know repeatedly have someone say, oh, I don't see you as disabled or, you know, oh, I describe you as having special needs. And I'm like, my needs aren't special. Like how I do something is different, but my needs aren't special. You know, that's an amount of labor that most of us don't like having to do. And so educate yourself and then come to your loved ones with questions. But do the legwork yourself so that we don't have to. Mm -hmm. All good advice. Thank you. So as we are rounding out our conversation here, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is my kids. Um, I have three children. They're 12, they're nine, they're eight. And I remember when my son was in elementary school and my older two have dwarfism. My youngest is boringly average so far. And I remember my son getting upset that there was a segregated classroom for kids that were autistic. And he was probably like six or seven at the time. And he asked me, why are those kids in a class just with kids like them? And why am I, as a little person, not in a segregated class? Why do I go to school with everybody else? And I said, well, you know, some people believe that people with different types of disabilities need different levels of support and that that can't be provided in the class with everyone else. And he said, I just feel like they think less of autistic people. And he said, you know, it really bothers me because, and he, he pointed out, he's like, I have an Uncle Ari who was the youngest person confirmed by the United States Senate. I have an Auntie Julia who runs an organization. You know, I know all of these autistic adults that are doing really cool things where they put in separate classrooms when they were kids. And I said, I don't know. You might, you might want to ask them. That's a conversation to have. But the fact that my son noticed that there were people with disabilities being treated differently and was actually unpacking what that meant based on his lived experience and that he had role models. He, as a person with a physical disability, 
has role models in the neurodiverse community and was making that connection between these autistic kids grow into those autistic adults I know. And why is why why do we have these separate systems for different p- groups of people? And so that gives me hope and that that kids see these things that you know, Beyonce and Lizzo re-record songs because let me tell you, I am still sick to death of hearing Black Eyed Peas let's get the R word. They never re-recorded that. That's a crap song. It sounds like an Applebee's ad. And every time I hear it, I'm like, oh my God, again. But to say that the most powerful singers on the charts right now went back and re-recorded something because they heard from their fans that it wasn't okay, to me is really powerful. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Future Hindsight. It was really a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Rebecca Coakley is the U.S. Disability Rights Program Officer for the Ford Foundation. Next week on Future Hindsight, just in time for running the Thanksgiving dinner political gauntlet, we are going to arm you with a better understanding of libertarianism and how it's shaping our current political battles. People want to be free. It is good for people to control their own lives. I think that it is helpful if one talks to libertarians, which all of us find ourselves doing from time to time, to realize that there is this common ground. We really are arguing about means and not ends. Most people, if they reflect, are going to agree with you that people aren't freer if they die of COVID. People aren't freer if particulate inhalation shortens their lives. One of the things that lots of us want to do with our freedom is live long enough to meet our grandchildren. The appeal to freedom is great, and I think that you want to show the person you're talking to that you fully appreciate that. You're not against freedom. The question is, how do you deliver it? We're joined by Andrew Koppelman. He's the author of Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. It's a fascinating history of this idea and an excellent lens for understanding so much of American life and politics. And maybe even your grumpy Uncle Charlie. That's next time on Future Hindsight. We're also active on Twitter and would love to engage with you all there. You can follow me at Mila Atmos, that's one word, M-I-L-A-A-T-M-O-S, or follow the pod at F-U-T-U-R underscore hindsight. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.